0: Welcome to the ATS podcast, interviewing for your first job in the virtual era. In the past two years, the pandemic has drastically changed the nature of work. One of the most significant changes has been the move toward virtual seminars, talks and interviews. Even as we start our slow return to a new normal, it seems inevitable that virtual meetings will continue to play a larger role in our careers going forward. Many people, myself included, Have chosen jobs over the past couple years based almost solely on virtual interviews. Doing so adds another degree of novelty to the already brand new process of interviewing for one's first faculty position. This leaves many of us wondering how to best gauge a job virtually and also how to best represent yourself in interviews in this forum. Today, we are fortunate to have a panel of accomplished clinicians with interests spanning from research to medical education that are also heavily involved in recruiting faculty and fellows for their institutions to provide some insight into the virtual interviewing process.
1: And on that note, our panel today includes Dr. Meilan Han, a professor of medicine and chief of the division of pulmonary and critical care medicine at the University of Michigan, Dr. Mitchell Grayson, a professor of pediatrics at Nationwide Children's Hospital and The Ohio State University, also Chief of the Division of Allergy and Immunology at his institution. And lastly, we have Dr. Bashak Charu, who is an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary, Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Washington, and also the Program Director for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship there. Vikram Tejwani and I will be moderating today's podcast on careers and respiratory genomics research. My name is Lauren Eggert. I'm a clinical assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine at Stanford University.
0: Great. And my name is Vikram Tejwani. I'm an assistant professor at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine. Um, today, our podcast will focus on questions related to virtual interviewing and the distinct challenges and advantages that this platform confers. Our panelists have been interviewing faculty applicants and guiding fellow applicants on their job search over the last two years. Hopefully by the end of the podcast, our listeners will have a better idea of the necessary steps that they can take to ensure they're prepared for this new form of interviewing. So we will start at the beginning with the unique challenges faced by applicants. What are the unique challenges uh, you all face trying to assess if a job applicant is a good fit for your institution virtually?
2: I guess I can start with that. I uh, have, I suppose a rather unique perspective in that I both interviewed and have hired during the pandemic. So I uh, actually uh, took on the role of division chief at Michigan in January which meant I was interviewing off and on during the pandemic at several institutions and then since then I have been interviewing uh, for faculty positions also at the University of Michigan. Um, So you know I as opposed to going from room to room to room obviously part of the interview process is probably going to be on Zoom now even I would my guess is that That some element of Zoom is always going to remain. And so, uh, you know, obviously, there's, I suppose, some general tips about, you know, looking good on Zoom and that sort of thing. I suppose it's also nice because you can look up information about your who might be interviewing you and you can actually have it at the ready, uh, which I I think is also uh, also kind of nice. But, uh, you know, I I would say for the people that I've been interviewing, uh, you know, it also means they'll be probably doing some kind of of talk or presentation, probably also on Zoom. And then at least for the people I've hired recently, we've uh, sort of concluded the interview process with something that was in person. Uh, Although I've actually hired someone recently who never came. Uh, we hired them, signed, and they didn't come until they came to buy house. So <laughs> some of it also, I think, depends a little bit on, on trust. So it's a lot of phone calls, a lot of calling people. But, but I think in the end, a lot of the elements to the, the interview are probably still the same.
3: So I'll, I'll build on that sort of in terms of challenges. My biggest problem with the 2D mode of using Zoom, is really the fact that I don't have, a. It's, it's hard to see if someone's gonna fit in with our group. Um, and, and so that's my biggest sort of problem with it. It's, it's a great sort of first place to start. Um, and it's great to be able to get people to talk and sort of you know, find out whether someone's really enthusiastic about your, your institution, your division, or whether they're just kind of, this is one of a bunch that they're sort of going through or whatever. But at some level, I need to get them down here um, and actually have them interact in a three-dimensional world um, to just sort of see how well they they fit in with with the rest of our group. And so it, it makes it hard. I'm I, I, you know, Dr. Long, I, I, I'm amazed. We actually went ahead and hired somebody sight unseen. Well, not I guess not unseen, but not seen in 3D. Um, and and I, I I would be hesitant to do that. I, I I feel like I need to have that that interaction. But it is a great sort of initial screen, sort of an initial visit um, to be able to sort of understand what people are interested in and sell your institution a little bit.
2: Yeah, I I agree, it's not easy. So I worked really hard to uh, make sure that the outside individuals talked with as many people as was necessary. And a lot of times that meant multiple loops. So you might set up one interview day and then maybe there's extra one-off meetings uh afterwards uh I I do agree that having someone come in person sort of near the end of the process is really helpful the other thing uh, as I mentioned that I've been trying to do a lot of is calling as many people as I possibly can who might know the applicant either both at their home institution and sometimes at at prior institutions or other people that I know have worked with them Uh, it you know it it may not be ideal, but you know, doing everything I can to at least virtually get a 360 perspective uh, on an applicant.
0: Great. So I, I think um, some of those some of those challenges that you all described from a recruitment perspective, I think likely apply to the prospective candidate as well, particularly trying to get a sense of fit um, and, and kind of alignment with an institution, in a, a 2D environment. So I'm I'm curious. Um, any advice that you all would have to try to navigate that um, both from hearing about it from your perspective, but also how an applicant might try to gauge that as they're interviewing at different places virtually?
4: Um, I can start with that one. I'll confess that most of the advice that I give is to our graduating fellows who are often interviewing for their first job, but I think the challenges are the same, really. I think everyone is just wondering about the culture of the group that they're going to be joining and whether they're going to might fit in with that group, um, but I think the first step is really, and I, I think this has come up already, recognizing that so much of the in-person interview is is being replicated with the virtual format. So I think some information you want to gather. Um, I think we're mostly talking about people applying for academic jobs right now, but even academic jobs vary widely. So you know, finding out some basics of what does full-time clinical time mean at your institution? You know, what what is this much clinical time worth, for example? Um, Is there uh, protected time? What are requirements for clinician educators versus clinicians versus physician scientists? Asking about, um, you know, scholarly requirements. Um, What are opportunities for mentorship? All the things that you would wanna know if you were going to interview in person, I think you wanna replicate that with the virtual format. And then I think trying to find ways to take opportunities to meet with um, junior faculty and maybe some people who are peers. So you might see that there are some junior faculty who also just joined a new institution. And that's a great person to talk to, to say, tell me about your transition from institution X to institution Y. What were the things you were surprised by when you came here? Um, So it does require, I think, a little bit of extra digging, but it's a lot of the same things that you would be doing, I think, in person.
3: I would... Add to that, that there's a little bit more of an expectation, I think, um, that you will understand a little bit, you'll have done a little bit more background on the institution and the people you're talking to. And, and this was mentioned before, but, you know, you have the ability to do uh, a, a quick Google search or whatever, and, and so you should know who the people, it's, you know, it's, you're going to get that, the names of the people you're meeting with um, in time to go look them up you might not have that in, a, in an in-person interview. If, you're, if your schedule is changing, you just sort of meet the person. Um, so it, it, it's helpful to, to, to know who they are. It's helpful to show that you're enthusiastic about the place you're interviewing, assuming you want a job there. Um, one thing I would also say is the usual Zoom uh, etiquette is probably a huge issue so, you know, don't have your email open while you're talking to me and, you know, zooming over, look over, whatever there, all that, and don't be writing an email while you're talking to people and stuff like that. I mean, you, you still need to focus and act as if you're sitting in the room with the person um, and don't do just dumb things and don't have a stupid background that has like stuffed animals behind you and things like that. Um, that's okay for us to have. It's not good for, for the applicant to have or the, the candidate to have because, you know, you don't want things to distract. So you want to keep it sort of focused and, and keep it professional. Um, and most everybody knows that, but I just throw that out there as just a piece of it.
2: You know, some funny advice I got, actually, although it can be a little bit dangerous. You, you probably want to have your camera on initially, but someone uh, gave me some good advice, which is you can go in on Zoom and turn your own image off completely. And um, I actually find my own image distracting because I think everyone's like, oh, you know, does my hair look okay, et cetera, whatever it is. But you know, once you get yourself touched up and you think you're ready to go, it actually helps you to really focus on the person that you're talking to if you either try to minimize or turn your own image off, at least I find so.
4: I think that's great advice. I've actually heard that um, advice given to residents and fellows who are, or medical students and residents who are applying for residencies and fellowships, is just leave your own camera off so that you can just focus on what you're saying. I think the one thing that to, to add there is that if cameras are off, I think we lose some of the you know, natural social cues and sometimes people tend to ramble in that situation. So um, if you're one of those people, you just need to make sure you're answering a question and then pausing. And then if the if the person wants you to expound a little bit more on your answer, you can you can ask them for a go ahead to, to give a little bit more information, but you just don't want to be having soliloquies on Zoom.
1: I think these are all great advice. And On to the next question. I think we've already touched on this a little bit. I know, Dr. Grayson, you touched on this. We've all talked, uh, you've all talked about different benefits and downfalls of the Zoom interview. Going forward, as we enter this next stage in the pandemic, do you still see a role for virtual interviews or some kind of hybrid model? Are you eager to get back to in person interviews? How do you see this new stage um, going forward?
2: at least at the University of Michigan for right now,
1: we're we're starting, we're
2: just kind of feeling our way. So for instance, even, you know, we're trying to figure out what do we do with research conferences? What do we do with faculty meetings where uh, suddenly our attendance has been really good. (laughs) But at the same time, you miss sort of all of that informal uh, water cooler, coffee line, uh, you know, chat, which is I think really um, helpful for camaraderie, for understanding culture. Uh, for networking and getting to know people, so I suspect, though, because of the convenience and the cost savings associated with Zoom, that some element of it is going to stay. And it may be that, for instance, if a, if someone was interview interested in you, uh, that you would start off with that first interview, a first couple of interviews as Zoom, and then my guess is that you would make it through that first round, and then if people were interested they would uh, take you to the next step. Now it's possible that for instance, uh, you know, they're already quite familiar with you or your work and in which case maybe they would go ahead and 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 uh, skip directly to uh, an in-person. But I think if there's, you know, if, if you're new to an institution or you're not as a, a really a well-known uh, individual to that institution, I, I think there probably will be, um, an inclination to start people off with um, Zoom interviews. I, don't, I don't know, Dr. Grayson, what do you think?
3: Well, I, I, I agree. I think there's a couple things I think are going to happen with it. So one is I think the initial phone calls may turn into initial Zoom calls instead of phone calls um, to sort of gauge interest and in what people want and all that. Um, I'm not sure whether the initial group, uh, you know, the initial visit, if you will, We'll, we'll go totally virtual. I think we're moving back towards bringing people in, having them give their talks and all that kind of stuff. But I do think you're going to have a, sort of the additional piece of anybody who's not available for the day that you come that we want you to meet with um, wherever on campus, whatever. We'll just set that up as a, as a Zoom call in the next week or two after you leave um, and, and be able to make sure that you get that opportunity to speak to people and sort of use that as a way to sort of expand beyond where we are with just in-person visits or just all virtual, um, but I, I I tend to think that we all are pretty much people people or whatever that you know, and we're going to want to do more of this in person if possible. And I I I don't see at least from our station yet any real push to try and say get rid of you know. Usually we do two in-person visits. I don't see that changing. I see it more as just being a supplement to that. So
1: on that note. I think we've, again, this is something we've already touched on as well, but many people listening to this podcast today are going to be interviewing and looking for jobs at institutions they've not previously been at for training or other reasons and may not even know anybody who's worked at an institution they're considering. Is there any way virtually you can really get a feel for the place? I mean, we talked about calling different or getting to know other junior faculty on Zoom. But do you think you can really do this in the virtual world? Is it really possible to get a sense of a place?
2: Well, it's certainly not straightforward. But, you know, after all, this is a podcast being done for the American Thoracic Society. So one of the things that, that I uh, do and have done is to, you know, get on that faculty page and then start cross-referencing it against, uh, you know, the American Thoracic Society rosters uh, for you know, various groups, reach out to you know, members in training, whatever it is that's your sort of home uh, within ATS. And I suspect for many institutions, there will be someone that you can track down within the ATS who would be, I think, willing to give you sort of that more intimate scoop about what the culture uh, at a place is like, I mean, even in person, I think it's you're never gonna have that perfect scenario. You could be sort of led on the perfect tour, meet a few people, and never really understand. I think um, that's where dinners are nice, um, and we're still trying to to do those kind of more informal interactions when when I do bring candidates on site for interviews, uh, and that I think definitely is difficult uh, to do. Um, sort of more virtually speaking. But I think the, the more interactions you have with the place, it's sort of like that cartoon, the blind man with the elephant. You know, the more interactions you have, the more ways you get, you're getting your information both directly and indirectly from uh, others. I think the more informed you'll ultimately be.
4: Yeah, I agree with everything Dr. Han just said. I think, you know, I think back to when we used to do things in person and I don't know how many spontaneous conversations really happened on those days, right? There might be five minutes of that in a day, but most of the day is marching from one interview to another, then sitting in a research conference, then maybe listening to another talk. So I don't know how many of those opportunities we had. I agree. It feels different. It feels like we're missing out on that. But I think there are probably ways to have some informality built in, even with virtual. For example, I think when you are having that, you know, maybe they're going to set up a separate meeting for you with a junior faculty member who just moved to that institution six months ago. When I've had those con- conversations, even on Zoom, they're super informal, right? We talk about our families, we talk about the how I like, you know, living in one city versus another. Um, we've had applicants that have said, I want to be connected with one of the senior fellows just to have a chit chat with them about their perspective on the division and training in the division. And those again, tend to be more informal than meeting with the division chief or more senior faculty. So I I think there are ways even with the virtual format um, to try to get at some of that culture that we've been talking about. Um, And I agree that we're probably gonna have some sort of a hybrid moving forward.
3: One thing I would say is, um, I don't know how many people are looking at research Um, focused careers. But I, I I sort of hesitate to think that you can do a virtual tour where your lab space is going to be. I wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage that because uh, if you've ever bought a house, um, people taking pictures and doing they can make places look pretty darn large and, and a lot different than they actually look like in person. So I would recommend that you in those situations definitely try and make sure you get at least Uh, an in-person visit to see the the lab space. Although with the caveat being, and I probably shouldn't say this, a lot of times what they show you is not where you end up when you actually move there, but we won't talk about that, so.
0: Great, thank you all. That's um, really insightful advice. Um, Another question, this is not necessarily unique to virtual interviewing, it's just for graduating fellows or nearly graduating fellows. How important do you all think it is for them to be differentiated at that stage, for example, into a medical education track, clinician track, or, or an investigative pathway. Um, and how does that factor in as you're kind of looking at your overall recruitment strategy?
2: Well, I think it really depends on what you're recruiting that individual for. So, uh, you know, as a division chief, I'm looking at the group of faculty that I have, and I know I have very specific needs in very specific areas. So. I might be short a clinician in a very specific um, focus area. I might be short a researcher in a very specific area, uh, or I might need someone who could geographically go to one specific location that's that. um, So I really, really think it depends on, you know, in one situation, it might not matter to me at all whether, how um, academic someone is, if my need is to fill, a, is to get a clinician in a satellite center, you know, 30 minutes from, from the university, it, it may, now it may matter certainly for, um, you know, maybe starting salary or whether, you know, their instructor or, you know, assistant professor, how many publications they have, that sort of thing. Um, but then for uh, other positions, it, it may matter a lot, you know, if I was hiring a new fellowship director or an ICU director or someone who, you know, does a very specific type of bench research. So I, I, I think it's a, it's a really um, tough question to answer broadly. I think there are instances where almost any CV, you know, assuming someone's a good doctor um, might be the right fit. Uh,
3: so, Dr. I'll just slightly go a little bit off that. I'm worried about people that aren't differentiated or at least have an idea of what they want to differentiate into at the end of their fellowship. Um, so I, I don't know if that helps anybody. Um, but, but somebody who still sort of says, I've done my fellowship and I want to do everything, or I don't know what I want whether I want to see patients or whether I want to do research, that, that bothers me because it's sort of that was the whole point of fellowship. Well, maybe not the whole point of fellowship, but it's a good chunk of why, what fellowship is supposed to do. So, you know, I, I, it, it worries me if you can't tell me, I would like to spend most of my time seeing patients, or I'd like to spend most of my time doing research. I'd like to spend most of my time educating, or I, or I, I, I like to teach and I want to see patients, right? The, the kind of statement of clinician educator kind of thing. And so that, I, I think if you don't have an idea what you want to be, sit back and think for a minute about why are you doing this? Why what is it about about uh, pulmonology or if, if you're an if you're an allergist allergy, whatever, what is it about the field that you like? What makes you happy? And that's probably telling you what you want to do. Rather than sort of try and think because I feel like people who say they don't have an idea what they want to be, they're they're coming in and sort of saying, I really want to work for you. And I don't care what you do, you just find a job for me and I'll do it. And and That means that I then put them somewhere that I think they might want to be, but that's stupid. They know what they want to be. So tell me what you want to be.
2: I guess I'll add to that. I was uh, chatting with one of my tenured faculty members today and I said to them, well, and they have kind of changed career paths a bit. And I said, well, have you thought about what you want to do? And he said, no, I'm not really sure. (laughs) I, I find that uh, career uncertainty can happen at any moment, um, but I, I don't know. I, I agree, Dr. Grace. And I think the one thing that I do like to see in people is to be passionate about something and to care about something. And I think that having that drive and motivation, I realize that that is going, that may change, right? Someone may be very interested in, in med now and who knows could get, get, you know, interested in sepsis research another day and end up, you know, following their, their pursuits in that direction. So I, you know, I, it's never a a guarantee that when someone comes in and says, I want to do X, we recently hired someone to do um, a very specific thing. And I was on a call with them and I said, well, what about X? And they said, Oh no, no, I'm not really interested in X. I'm interested in Y. (laughs) Uh, So I, I, it uh, never cease to be amazed at the ability of my faculty to change their minds. But uh, but but I, I will say, I, I agree that I think it, it is a good quality to have to have someone who is passionate about something, because if you're passionate about something, it means you're going to excel at it. And ultimately, that's what we all want to hire excellent physicians and excellent researchers and excellent educators.
4: Yeah, I, I agree with all that has been said. I think Dr. Shazwani, when you ask about Um, you know, maybe being a little undifferentiated. I think where that comes up is sometimes in the clinical realm where people will say, well, you know, I like pulmonary and I like critical care and I don't necessarily have a clinical niche yet. And I think that's generally okay. Some people do and some people don't. Um, And and flexibility is actually good in that sense because your first job, you might not actually have your dream breakdown of what your clinical time is going to look like. But in addition to kind of the the passion that's been brought up, I think you have to have a vision. Where is it that you want to go? Where is it that you're trying to get to? And maybe you need to sit down and think about, you know, in five years or in 10 years, my dream job is X, whether that's being an ICU director or a fellowship program director or a grant-funded physician scientist or whatever that is for you. And being able to articulate what your vision is, what your goal is, is I think... I'm going to look to the division chiefs here, but I think that's actually immensely helpful for a division chief, because you can also then incorporate into that conversation, here's where I want to go, here's what I need to get there. And this is where we're, we'll probably talk about negotiation at some point, but if you need some additional skills or opportunities to get to where you wanna go, whether that's a leadership course or a QI certificate or some faculty development workshops, that's an important thing to, to share with the, with your supervisor. So that they know where you wanna go, they can keep an eye out for, for opportunities for you. Um, and it, I think it helps with their vision for for, for their um, uh, the division, for the department, whatever it is. Um, but I think going in and saying, I just want a job here, you know, I'll be anything you want that I think all, all of us would caution against doing that.
0: Thank you. That's very helpful. So it sounds like a consistent theme is that the specific vision doesn't necessarily matter, but having one and, and being able to articulate that clearly is, is critical, maybe for ourselves at, at this stage. And then certainly from the perspective of who's ever um, on the other side, trying to uh, hopefully recruit us. Um, so specifically, uh, for those that are on more of a physician scientist or investigative pathway, um, what do you think is the best way to, um, convey a five-year plan in that context and, and within the five-year plan, what are some of the aspects that you found or advise, uh, your fellows that are most critical?
3: Well, I, I can jump around this. So I, I think for physician scientists, one of the things is, 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 you know, be realistic, um, most people coming out of fellowship, you're changing institutions. You're going to need a mentor. You're going to need some ability to grow within that. So it's, it's understanding that you aren't ready to be, unless you are a super superstar, which they exist, but you're really not ready to be an independent investigator and you're going to need a mentor or mentors. Um, and, and your research plan and what you're going to do is going to be shaped by those mentors. So it's not that you're going to come in suddenly. And you're going to study X, Y, Z because you know that's what it is. More than likely, it's going to be shifting to learn skill sets, and that five-year plan really is a way to get you funded and understand that you get those skill sets so that you're you're in a position then to remain funded. Um, and I think people sometimes overcall those what they think they can do, um, and so that's a problem. The other thing I'd say is don't I don't like it, and this is just me personally. I don't like when people talk about not having funding. Um, as, as sort of like in their five-year plan, when I don't have fun, it was like, let's well, not, let's not start off by assuming you're going to fail. Let's start off by assuming you're going to be successful and try and build on that. So that, that's kind of how I would say for the physician side is, and then obviously the, the key part for them is really being able to put together, this is more on the division chief side, but that, that appropriate mentoring um, situation where they're, they're working with a mentor that actually is well-funded does in the relative area they're in and, and can provide uh them guidance so I, those are the major things I'm I concerned about with that.
2: Yeah, usually if we're you know the post fellowship period is really tricky uh, for people, and at least at my institution we try not to move people <laughs> um, right after fellowship until they've been in the incubator a little bit longer. But sometimes life happens. Uh, one of my uh, uh, faculty or one of my fellows is needing to go to another institution for personal reasons and we're trying to help them sort out, you know, how to get them on the launch pad and um, and sometimes, you know, we will need, again, need to take people at sort of various and wonky times during this sort of formative period. And so I think, you know, Dr. Grayson's right, that for me, the questions are all about um can we find you a mentor that's that's going to be a good fit or even close (laughs) uh can do we have the support that you need to be does an individual need to be successful what kind of track record does the individual come in with in terms of of research and uh publications what skill set is there what is the evidence that this person's on us at least on the right trajectory and um can we you know, uh, make a plan for, okay, roughly, you would have this done by year one, this done by year two, apply for, uh, you know, mentored career development award in, you know, in this year, I, you know, I'm actually in the middle of hiring someone sort of in this position right now. And it's, and those are the kinds of nuts and bolts discussions that, that I like to have it be very clear on that we're both on the same page about who the mentoring team is, what the project's going to be and what the timeline is.
1: So moving on in the research realm, what advice do you have for interviewees uh, on giving their chalk talk? Is this typically limited to those joining on the science physician investigator pathway? Do all your new hires give, uh, give a talk at your institution? And what are your thoughts on this uh, being done virtually or in person and favoring one or the other going forward?
3: Well, I'll, I'll jump in. <laughs> um, so I, what, what I like is everybody give a talk. I, I, I don't, so if you, if you wanna be a clinician educator, I'd like to see that you can educate. Um, if you're gonna be a physician scientist, I'd like you to give me a chalk talk. So I don't know what, the educator talk is not a chalk talk. Um, but it, but but I do have them give talks. If I have somebody who's going to just be a clinician excellence which is one of the pathways we have, which essentially means you just see patients, um, you don't have no educational teaching responsibilities, no scholarly responsibilities. Then I would not. I've not actually hired anyone in that into that pathway. But the other pathways I do because I want to see that you can teach, and I want to or or I want to see that you can think and you can do research. Um, we do do them virtually. I prefer to do them in person. Um, we didn't virtually because we had to do them virtually, I, I, but I would do them in person that you can already understand that I prefer to bring people in for their interviews anyways. But it's part of what I'm looking at is also your composure and your ability to, to, to deal with all this. It's hard if I'm looking at Zoom and I get your face in the upper corner and then the rest is your slides. I don't see that you're sweating buckets and whatever else. And for all I know, you have an entire script sitting on the side that you're just reading to me. Um, so I, I much prefer them to, to be in person so we can have much more interactions. I want to see how you deal with, with questions and answering them. That's definitely both situations, definitely with the talk talk because that can spin and go in a lot of different directions and we really want to get an idea of what are you thinking and how are you thinking? So um, I, I, yeah, I've been redundant in my saying, I'd like to have them in person.
2: I agree. I think Zoom is sort of this odd equalizer, and it's a little bit hard to tell. Not that you have to have amazing presentation skills. I mean, and that's definitely something that is a skill, and I think it grows with time. And so I would not expect um, someone necessarily, you know, fresh out of fellowship to, you know, give the same level of presentation as someone who's been out for 20 years. Um, but there are, you know, like Dr. Grayson said, I'm fairly certain I've listened to people who were reading scripts because <laughs> when I've seen them, you know, talking first, that it's a totally different, different scenario. And, and again, that doesn't necessarily mean that that person's worth or not worth hiring. But, but to the extent that you do want to A, evaluate someone's presentation skills and B, also really evaluate their ability to think on their feed and, and answer questions and really interact with the audience, I think it is much easier to more accurately assess that uh, in, in person uh, than it is uh, on, uh, on Zoom. But if you're thinking from the applicant's perspective, <laughs> uh, it, it's pro- it may be easier for, for you, know, you to kind of get your, your feet wet and, and just kind of get your feet underneath you, I guess, uh, doing Zoom, but, but still need to be prepared for what that transition is going to be like Uh, In person, and in fact, if you haven't had the opportunity to do some in person talks uh, before you actually kind of take your show on the road and you're actually going to interview would encourage you to figure out a way to get some practice, whether it's at your own institution or, I don't know, even, you know, (laughs) forcing some people to listen to you in a room or something, Uh, because it really is from a presenter
4: perspective, a much uh, different experience. Yeah. And I'll just add, I mean, I think job talks are common in academic medicine. And again, predominantly it's going to be for people either who are going to be sharing their science or showing their educator skills. We also don't um, necessarily do them for folks who are going to be in a clinical track with us. But I think just like when you're you're going in, this whole process is about sharing your story, right? You're weaving a story about who you are, where you're trying to go. And I would approach the this job talk in the same way. Maybe you're telling the story of your science and why you're so passionate about what you're doing and the questions that you're thinking about asking. Or maybe you're sharing a clinical topic that you're very passionate about or you're sharing your passion for teaching. Um, regardless of whether you're doing it in person or, or virtually, I think, again, you need to just invest in this process. And this is you showcasing who you are, where you wanna go, and what you're passionate about.
1: So moving in a slightly different direction, when and how in the interview process should the candidate negotiate their, so to say, package? For example, the time or support they want for research, leadership positions, their pathway in the medical school or the program, nursing, administrative support for clinic, do you come out with what you want earlier on, or is that something that happens later in the process?
2: Well, at least in my experience, um, there's usually in that first call, there's some at least general discussion type of being desired, you know, clinical research, that sort of thing. But it, um, I, I think it's sort of a, a journey, I guess, a bit where details sort of come out a little bit more and a little bit more. So usually at the end of an interview day, if I have a chance to kind of do some wrap up with candidates, I'll say, Oh, you know, what do you think? And then I'll give them just more general information about what I might have or what we're looking for that could fit them. And in some instances, that actually might be where the road ends, where they say, actually, that wasn't at all what I was looking for. And, and that's the end of discussion for other people. You know, it's enough, but then the farther it gets, the farther it gets, you start getting into an offer letter. That's where you really start getting down to the nuts and bolts of, I will get, you know, you know, this much lab space, this much startup, this much for CME, this much, you know, for moving expenses, all that kind of stuff. But some of those super, super fine details, um, uh, or, you know, don't, where is my clinic going to be, which hospital am I practicing at? Um, sometimes those don't get finalized towards the, the very end when the offer ladder is being drafted. I, I don't know, uh, Dr. Grayson, would you have a different experience with that?
3: No, no, Dr. I, w- I would agree. I, I think the only things that usually come up early are if there's um, anything that is an absolute need. So if, 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 that, if somebody needs a certain machine, whatever it might be, or a certain environment, whatever, and, and it's, it's just, it's, it's a non-negotiable thing. If it's not present, I can't come there. Um, then that is usually upfront because then there's no point moving forward. Otherwise, it's it's kind of like dating, right? It's the, the first visit is really, do we get along? You're not crazy. I'm not crazy. It might actually work out okay. Oh, this is kind of exciting. Um, and then the second visit is sort of moving it to the next level where, okay, now what do I really need to make this what I want to be? And what can I get out of you? I'm not sure that that's... My dating analogy may fall apart there, but, um, but the idea is that that's sort of where it moves into that next thing. And we then start to put together that letter. So, I, you know, that is really more where you get into the, the nuts and bolts. And again, the good thing is because you've done visits, you have an idea of what you would need to be successful. And that's where you can have that more detailed discussion.
4: I agree with all of that. I think the only thing I'll add for especially for folks who are just graduating from fellowship is sometimes people come in and they say I want to be a, you know, residency APD or lead a pathway in the medical school, um like you brought up Dr. Eggert. and Especially if you're going to a new institution, positions like that generally are not going to be a part of, you know, day one of your job. You need to go to that institution and prove yourself a little bit and make connections. But I do think you can have a conversation with the division chief about that to say again, if your goal is to um, be in that type of of a position in one to three years, you can ask about, well, what are my opportunities to get involved with medical school teaching or the residency program and Knowing that my end goal is to get to X position. So I think you can weave those into the conversation. Agree. I think it's part of the process and maybe not the first thing you say when you log on to the Zoom call. I
2: will just add uh, some additional advice for people. I think it's when you start getting down to sort of the nitty gritty um, I think sometimes people don't even really know what the typical components might be or what are even things they could ask for. Or if they had asked for it, I probably would have given it to them, but they didn't ask. <laughs> so I think it actually does help to, um, to, you know, over my career, I will say I have benefited from two types of mentors. One is my, you know, kind of my senior mentor, but also has been peer mentors. And so um, that's where I think it, it does help to talk to people in similar situations or people who have signed offer letters just in a year or two before you just to understand sort of the lay of the land and, and what are some of the kinds of things that, that might, might go into them.
4: I think that's wonderful advice. I had no idea the first time I received a contract. I was like, okay, I guess I'll just sign it. And then I thought, maybe I'll just run this by my mentor. And she was great. She was like, it doesn't say anything about desk space or a computer here we should make sure that you're going to have an office. So having someone review, especially if you're new in this process, I think it's critical.
0: Thank you all. Um, So we've touched upon this a little bit, just that the faculty interview process is a little bit more personalized and in particular candidate driven than potentially prior interview stages such as residency and fellowship. Uh, I'm curious how you all would contrast this from interviewing for residency or fellowship and how it kind of changes at the faculty level?
4: I don't know. I actually think it's not too dissimilar for fellowship interviews. I think very different from residency interviews, because I think residency for most folks is a discrete period of time. They Maybe they're going to go someplace for three years. They are not necessarily wedded to the area. But I think when folks are interviewing for fellowship, not everyone, there are, there are some applicants, though, who are really future oriented as they're doing their interviews and they're thinking strategically about this is an institution where with the right mentorship, I might thrive and I might want to stay at this institution when I'm done with my training. Um, So I think some people are thinking about, is this a a place where I can see myself working with these people? Will I have the right mentors here? Um, So in that way, I think it's maybe not too dissimilar from, from fellowship interviews. If you're already thinking about you know whether it's going to be a research career or an education career or whatever else it is.
2: yeah, I think yeah, I would agree with that. i I think it everything sort of the longer you think you might be in a space, the more the intensity kicks up in terms of also just the the family, you know, situation, spouse, kids, the area. So if you think you're only going to be in an area for two years, maybe doesn't matter. But if this is where you and your spouse or you and your significant other are going to settle, then all of a sudden, all sorts of other things um, start to matter. So I think it just, it, it just makes the process a bit longer, a bit more in depth. Everybody wants to get to, it's more of a marriage, right? Everybody wants to get to know everybody just a little bit better but before that uh, commitment to use Dr. Uh, Grayson's dating analogy.
3: And one thing I would say in addition is that if it's a research component to it, with, with fellowship applicants, I'm not worried about what their research interests, I mean, that's not that I don't listen to them, but it's not, it, you, you can do whatever you're going to do, you're going to become what you're going to become. But for a faculty applicant, I'm much more concerned about how is that going to lead to their career, to their independent investigator, or, or, or however they're going to build their career on that. So, but otherwise, they're very similar.
1: So I think we're you know, into our final few questions. And before we end, I'd like a little more in-depth information, a little advice, so to say. I know we've touched on this a little. Over the past two years of virtual interviews, and I guess you could talk about all interviews if you want, what are some things you've seen done that you would recommend that our listeners who are going out to interview for themselves do not do? What
4: are the big no-no's? I think this was actually true for in-person interviews too, but um, I would avoid being passive in the process. Um, if, if you're getting onto a bunch of interviews and you're just waiting for people to ask you one question after another and then just minimally kind of answering their questions, um, you're not investing in this process. And I would argue that this is a really important process because this is about your career development and where, where you want to go. So I think some things that have come up already, but one, take the time to do your homework, learn something about the people that you're going to be interviewing with and the the city, the institution, the program, you know, do some homework up front, And then I think use your time wisely. Like You want to gather information during it. it you're not, it's, feels like you're the one that's on the hot seat and getting all of the questions, but I would flip that and instead say you were trying to get all of your questions answered to decide if this place is the best fit for you. Um, and so that just means you invest in the process and you ask the questions that you need to get answered.
3: I would agree with that. I would also say um, this is just because it's happened. It's weird. Don't, don't try and be the expert or know more than the expert when you interview with the expert, if that makes sense. So I've had people tell other people that like, either their research is wrong, which is a crazy thing to say when you're presumably trying to get a job. Um, and I've had people come and give talks where basically they present my faculty's work back to my faculty, which is just weird. And, and it's it, it's just I mean I don't know what to say it's just be smart and think about it if you're going to a place know who the people are you're going to be talking to and realize what would be appropriate don't don't come in there and give a talk that is you know would be perfect for medical students if you want to be a program director or you want to be teaching fellows I mean it, it just be cognizant of what you're trying to do um, and then and, and then don't be a jerk. Um, which you really shouldn't have to say, but I just had to say it.
2: I mean, I've, I've seen some what, what I'd call Zoom errors. So taking phone calls in the middle of a Zoom interview, um, you know, reading your slides, because you can get away with that, but it's sort of obvious uh, when you're doing uh, a presentation. So I would say just basic. Uh, etiquette, but I also like the statement about trying to be proactive and direct the interview. Yes, you're going to need to answer the questions, but I always love when candidates have qu- their own specific list of questions that show me that they're passionate about the place and they've looked it up and they, re- and that it also gives me a sense that they actually know what it takes to succeed and are asking the right questions to make sure that those pieces are in place. Tells me they've done their homework. They've thought about things a lot. so. I love it when interviewees have great questions during the interview. I would say that always impresses me. It means, it means they're, they're thinking and they're not, they're not sitting in the passenger seat of their own life. They're actually in the driver's seat. They're, they have a, a destination in mind and they're working uh, on getting there. Those are the, the kind of people that I want to hire.
1: thank you for those answers. Those are very helpful. I guess my last question would be, as this is a podcast for the ATS, what role does the ATS play in your recruitment strategy? And is it beneficial uh, for applicants to get involved in the ATS and how could ATS help them in this process?
2: I, I think it's huge. I mean, that's a, like I said. It's one of the first things I'll do is if I'm interested in a candidate somewhere, I'll get out my ATS roster. I'll look up who's in that area. I'll start working the network. I'll you know pull contacts, find out who knows who, get the backstory. But on the flip side, for the applicant, I mean, we've got so many different you know mentoring groups within uh, ATS that I think can give you information on. All sorts of tips about whether it's the institution, how to give a good interview, tips on what to try to negotiate for in your first offer letter. Those are all things where uh, having peers that are doing something similar. And so for many of you, that may end up being, uh, you know, people in your home assembly. Um, it, you know, sometimes it might be someone in a, in a committee, but I, I do encourage people to. Um, utilize everything that that's available to them within uh, ATS to help them with this process.
4: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I think ATS is a wonderful venue. It's, It's a huge international conference, but the world of academic pulmonary and critical care medicine is actually not that big. And I think the conference is a really great way to start making connections outside of your institution. I think starting as a trainee, but throughout your career. And I think those connections end up leading to collaboration. They end up leading to to job offers and maybe you weren't even considering changing jobs but you learned about an opportunity. Um, And then to some great friendships. I mean, I have a lot of peer mentors through the ATS and like Dr. Han mentioned, there are so many uh, mentoring opportunities there. So I I think there's a wealth of information there ranging from jobs to mentorship um, to networking.
3: I have nothing to, I mean, that that basically covers all of it. Um, But I would say the in-person meeting is a great place to meet people.
4: (laughs) Dr. Grayson wants to make sure we all understand he likes people and being in person and not virtual.
0: Agree. And then our, um, our final question would be, if you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice as you were looking For your first job, what would that piece of advice be?
2: I actually would have negotiated because I didn't negotiate at all. I didn't ask anybody. I was just so grateful to have a job. I was like, okay, great. That sounds good. You're going to pay me and I'll show up perfect. And I was really stupid. Um, I don't know. In the end, I don't know if I would have ended up in a different place or not, but um, I think that people that are graduating now, particularly women, are a lot more savvy than I was. And this is where it really helps to, <clears throat> to talk to other people and just find out, you know, get a general sense for salary ranges, get a general sense for typical expectations, what kind of things, you know, you could typically ex- expect to have guaranteed, um, you know, get input for your, you know, from your mentor, um, so I guess that, that would be, um, d- you know, my advice don't, don't do what I did.
4: <laughs> that completely resonates with me. And I think for many people coming out of training, you're just, you, you're in disbelief that somebody wants to offer you a job. And so you don't even think to, to ask for things and to negotiate. So I completely agree with that. Um, I think my biggest advice would be, again, just investing in this process. like you are probably not going to be doing the same job for the next 40 years of your life, but probably for the first chunk, right? You're going to be at at an institution. And I think this is a great pause moment when you're um, searching for a job to sit down and actually put aside time to think about where do I want to go? How am I going to get there? What's important to me? What's important to my family? This is a, a big life decision you're making. And so I wouldn't Take it lightly and just say, oh, "I'm just going to hop on Zoom and talk to a few people and be done." I, th- I think you want to think about where you want to go and invest in learning about the place or places that you're interviewing at.
3: And I guess this is a theme. We all got hired way less than we should have been been making or something. But um, I, I would say, you know, do a bit of your homework. One thing I would tell people is take a look at AAMC, which does publish a book or go to your library. You can get some idea of salaries because people don't always want to tell you salaries. Um, But and also talk to a lot of people, talk to your mentors and really, really, really get them to actually sit down and and look at what your your offer letter is and and discuss it, Um, because I like everybody. We all I, I you know, I was just delighted that I was making more than I was as a fellow and didn't really ask any other questions in that. And, you know, you don't really want to be at the bottom fifth percentile of, of salaries for, for assistant professors. It's not a great place to be, even if it is more than maybe it's a
0: Great, well, this was uh, really wonderful and, and insightful. So uh, on behalf of the ATS and the Assembly of Allergy, Immunology and Inflammation, Dr. Eggert and I would like to again uh, thank Dr. Grayson, Dr. Choru and Dr. Han uh, today for sharing their advice on interviewing in a virtual or potentially a hybrid environment um, or totally in person, Dr. Grayson. So <laughs> we, we hope everyone uh, listening has been able to gain some insight uh, into how to navigate this unique time in finding your first job. Thank you all again.